everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time with us, then let me just welcome you and say that I am very glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. Now let's just hit the ground running and jump right into John chapter 11, which is going to kind of be the launch pad for our conversation for today. Now John 11 describes and recounts a very, very famous incident that happened in the life of Jesus. And it's one that you're probably already familiar with, even if you don't recognize the reference right off the top of your head. And that is going to be the death of Lazarus. Now, I'm not going to go verse by verse through this passage because that would be a really worthy and helpful exercise and a wonderful thing to do and a great use of time. However, there's just one thing in particular that I'm hoping that we can see from this passage. So I'm just going to skim across the surface here to get to that point. So in, in John 11, we find out that Lazarus is ill. He's very sick. Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother. They live in Bethany. And so Jesus hears that he is sick. Jesus waits two more days and then departs and goes to where Lazarus is. And by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus is, of course, already dead. And it says that he had been in the tomb for four days at this point. And to be honest, I'm having to fight the urge of just going through this passage slowly and talking about a whole lot and not missing uh, any of the details, but I, I just I leave that to you. I encourage you to go read John 11 and spend some time in there, um, because again, like I said, there's just kind of one thing I'm trying to highlight right now. And so Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb four days. Jesus arrives. He interacts with both Martha and Mary. It's a very emotional scene. This is the passage where uh, famously we know the verse that says Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's John 11:35. And so there you go. Repeat after me. Jesus wept. You just memorized scripture. You have done something today. You have memorized a scripture. And so there you go. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. But I I say this is just a very emotional passage. Let's hop down to verse 38 of John 11. I'm just going to start reading here. John 11, 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So let's pause there. That was 38 and 39. Sometimes it can be very easy to read the Bible in a very stoic, sterile sort of way, where we just kind of read the words on the page and go on. But it can be a really helpful practice sometimes to slow down and just acknowledge the emotions in the scene. Like I already said, you know, we talk about Jesus, how Jesus wept, and there are a lot of other, um, if you read through this passage, there's just a lot of emotion. And so slowing down, even even asking and thinking, how are these people feeling right now? What was going on? You know, it says that, I just read, it says that Jesus, it says, deeply moved again. You know, Martha, when Jesus says, uh, take away the stone, Martha says, basically, she says, there's going to be an odor. Why? Because the body's decomposing. And don't just think of this as like, again, sterile, like a sterile scientific statement. It, it's not just like, you know, well, actually, you know, Lord, there's going to be a stench because what happens whenever somebody dies over a period of time, their body begins to decompose. She's not talking scientifically. She's talking emotionally because who is this? This is her brother. And she's thinking, if we roll away this stone, I'm going to smell my decomposing brother. And 
can, can you, I do, you, it's just, it's so heavy. You see, the emotion is in here, and this is just engaging us on a level where we need to be engaged. It's heavy. So, you can just hear all this in their voice. Now, Jesus obviously already knew that he, what he was going to do. Uh, he already knew that he was going to you know, raise Lazarus from the dead. He said that earlier in the passage. He says um, in John 11... Let's see, John eleven eleven. it says, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And that's, uh, that was John 11, 11 through 15. And so Jesus um, explicitly says he has fallen asleep, and then he clarifies it means he has died. But he says, but I go, to, I go to awaken him. I go to awaken him. And so Jesus knew from the outset what he was going to do. So returning to the verses where we were, I had read 38 and 39. Jesus responds to Martha whenever she says that about there being an odor. It says in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now stop there. You can uh, go back and read verses like 21 through 27 about a conversation that Martha and Jesus have earlier in this passage where Jesus says, um, I am the resurrection and the life. It's, it's a really, um, it's a really wonderful passage. You can go back and read that. So continuing in verse 41, it says, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So let's pause. So they roll away the stone. They do it. And um, and then Jesus prays this prayer. But Jesus' prayer is very interesting. He says, um, I thank you, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But then he says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And so Jesus says, Overtly, I'm praying this prayer out loud. I know you hear me, Father, but I'm saying this so these people may believe. Because again, he knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows exactly what's about to happen. The stone is rolled away. Jesus prays this prayer. And then verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Let's just pause there. Again, get in this scene. Get in this moment. The stone is rolled away to this tomb. Jesus prays this prayer, and then he cries out, Lazarus, come out. I bet, I mean, think about the amount of time, like even, even I don't know how long it took for Lazarus to come out of the tomb, because of course we're going to see in a moment that he does come out. Jesus has all authority, and Jesus told him to come out, and he came out. Not even death could prevent that. And so, but just think about that moment, that pause between when Jesus said that and Lazarus came out. Can you imagine? But then it goes on, verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And so there it is. And I'm sure there were a lot of gasps and screams and all sorts of stuff. But I want to point out something really cool that one time uh, was shown to me. I think I heard about it. Maybe from John MacArthur. I, I don't remember. I think it was him, but I could possibly be wrong there. Where this was not just a matter of air re-entering someone's lungs, which would have been amazing enough, period. If somebody had died and then was brought back and, you know, 
But this is somebody who had been dead for four days, meaning the body had decomposed. And so there was like new creation happening here. It's like the body had wasted away and it was recreated in a manner of speaking. It was healed. It was restored. And so this was this was incredible. This is absolutely incredible. And so that's the passage right there. And we could continue to talk about that. You can see this is so amazing. We could spend episodes just talking specifically about that right there. But there's one thing I wanted to point out. So Lazarus was dead. He was brought back to life and he came out of the tomb. And listen to how he was described. It says in verse 44 again, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So this is what's what's happening here. What happens is this. He comes out of the grave wearing grave clothes. The clothes that he was wearing corresponded with what was true of him previously. And what was true of him was that he was dead. He was a dead man. And therefore, he wore dead man's clothes. However, he's not a dead man at this point anymore. Now is he? He's alive. And those clothes are not fitting for him anymore. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Let's get this stuff off of him. He's not dead anymore, and so it would be totally inappropriate for him to wear the grave clothes. It doesn't line up with his identity. It doesn't line up with who he is anymore. He's no longer dead. And so let's just think for a minute. It would be ridiculous. It would be just silly and very strange if Lazarus comes back from the dead, and it's like, wow, yes, Lazarus is alive. But he just continued through the rest of his life to wear those grave clothes. He would walk around with a linen cloth wrapped around his head with his hands and feet bound, kind of hopping around. And it's like, that would just be, that would be absurd. It would be crazy. Why are you wearing grave clothes? You're not dead. Why are you dressed like something that you're not? And while that seems and sounds ridiculous, I want to say that we as Christians, we do that very ridiculous thing and we don't even realize it. We walk around wearing grave clothes. We walk around wearing the clothes that correspond to who we were, not who we are in Christ. Because we have passages of scripture that talk about how what we are now is no longer what we were. We have passages like, um, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is a passage that I have referenced many times on many times this podcast, and I will do it many more times in the future because it's such a crucial, crucial passage. But what does it say? It says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. Paul says in Romans 6, 6, that our old self was crucified with him. was crucified with Jesus. And we'll get into that passage a little bit um, later on. And we've, we've spent you know time talking about that in previous episodes as well. But biblically speaking, when somebody becomes a Christian, they become something altogether new. And who they were ceases to be. And what they are is new. Let me make a very important statement that I think that's easy to miss. Christianity is not and has never been primarily about behavioral change. Rather, it is about a change in identity. Who we are is different. And this is what we're going to spend this episode talking about. Our identity. Our identity. So flipping over to Ephesians 4. Verses 20 through 20, uh, 22 through 24 is going to be the passage we're going to be focusing on here, which is another pretty famous passage that you might recognize once you hear it. But I'm actually going to back up to verse 17 for a few reasons. One, just to provide a little bit of context. But two, I just don't like starting halfway through a sentence. And so let's start with verse 17 in Ephesians 4. 
It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then here we go. These are the verses I was talking about. Resuming in verse 22, it says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's the end of the passage. And so here we have this talk about putting off the old, putting on the new, putting off the old, putting on the new. So let's just go through 22 through 24, just a little, not too slowly. I'm not going to get too granular because same with the Lazarus passage. There's just kind of one thing that I'm trying to get us to really see in this episode. But let's just skim across the surface here and make a few observations. Verse 22 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So simply put, what is the old self? It says to put off your old self. The old self is just who we were before who we were BC, who we were before we started following Jesus, who we were before we were born again. It's our old self. It's who we were, and the, and I could we could go a lot of places to describe what the old self is like. But I'll just read here in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. It says, "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived." In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's the end of that passage. And that's that's the old self. And we could, again, we could do a study just on the old self. But just simply put, it's who we were before Christ. Even in this passage that we just read um, earlier in this very passage in Ephesians 4, in verses 17 and 19, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that was through verse 19 of chapter 4. And so all these these are descriptions of the old self. And so the old self, it's just who everybody was before being a Christian. And so now what what specifically the old self looked like for each and every one of us is is going to be is going to vary a little bit everybody has a bit of a different past but the fact of the matter is that all of us have a period of time before we were christians before we were following the lord before we had given our lives to him before we had been born again before we were before we even really cared about following or obeying the lord and um all of us have, all of us have that. No one is born a Christian. That does not happen. I, I just can't overstate that enough. I mean, whenever, whenever somebody says, well, I've always been a Christian, that's a real red flag for me. I'm like, Ooh, because there's a lot of people who think that they've always been a Christian who have never been a Christian yet. And they're just kind of born into it and they went to church and they might've prayed some prayer, but they were never truly changed. They never actually came to know Jesus. And and I've, I'm not going to reteach this. I have an episode called, um, I never knew you. I believe it was episode 21, um, of this podcast. If that's not correct, I'll correct it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, episode 21, I, I never knew you where I talk about that, 
But then the passage goes on to say, it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, who you were, not who you are. And then it says, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so what are deceitful desires? Deceitful desires, this is simply the reality that sin makes promises that it can't deliver. I mean, deceitful desires, um, it's, uh, think back like in the garden, the garden of Eden, um, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had an appeal to Adam and Eve. And of course there is the serpent there as well, um, tempting them, leading them astray. And they of course took the bait, but what happened when they took the fruit? You know, the, the fruit to them promised wisdom. It promised that they could be like God, which that's the tragedy. They were already like God because they were created in the image of God. But they took the fruit and what happened? They eat it. And what happens at once? Shame. Fear. And they they realize that they are naked. They're ashamed. Um, it leads to expulsion from the garden and... Um, you know, it leads to death and, and of course, decay and all this stuff. And so it promised something, but it was, it, it, it led to death. It was a deceitful desire. And that's just, that's what sin does. So then let's read through the passage here. Uh, it says in verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, so and we're going to come back to that because that's crucial. And then verse 24, it says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so it says to put off the old, to put on the new. The old is who you were. The new is who you are. And who is the new self? What is the new self like? It says created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. When you were born again, a lot of things happened instantaneously. You were immediately adopted into the family of God and became his child. John 1, 12 through 13, Romans 8, I believe it's 14 through 17. Um, you immediately received forgiveness of sins and became the very righteousness of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You immediately received the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. And in fact, in episode 34 of this podcast entitled Justification, I talk a little bit about this and... Um, so that's also a good kind of companion to this episode. But a lot of things happen the second somebody is born again. And I mean, there, there's plenty of passages we could go to, but let's just look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, through 23. This is a description of what the new self is like. Um, it says, let's see here, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's, and these are some of the descriptions of what it looks like to have a life that's being led by the Spirit. Those are the qualities that are going to be produced by that. And so, who we are and who we were. Now, I hope you hear, even in the way I'm saying that, now we're talking about identity. This passage in Ephesians 4 is talking about identity, to put off the old self and put on the new self. This isn't a matter of just putting off old behaviors, which we are to do and putting on new behaviors, but these behaviors flow from who we are. Again, this is not just behavior modification. This is having a proper understanding of who we are in Christ. And as we have a proper understanding of who we are and truly believe it, then we can live out the way that we should be living things out. If we just start with behavior modification, then that's just not, it's not, not good and it's not right. It's not going to be helpful and we'll be striving in our own power and, and it'll be just not a, not a good time. So this is all great. Um, but let me, let me point out something that's really interesting. Let me read a helpful quote about this passage that I just read Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It starts off and says, without being too technical, which if a quote starts with, without being too technical, you better hold on. But without being too technical, the verb lay aside, 
or, or in the version I'm reading, to put off, the verb lay aside can be translated one of two ways. Either indicating a completed past action, this would be our position in Christ, or an action the believer is to carry out, almost giving it the sense of an imperative. That's the end of the quote. And so what does this mean? One is saying this passage here, Ephesians 4.22, about putting off and putting on can be understood in one of two ways when it comes back to actually understanding what the Greek that this is translated from is saying. One, it can just be describing something that is a completed past action. In other words, having the idea of you, your old self was put off. It was put off. You put off your old self and you've put on the new self or it has been put on. And so it, and that would be a completed past action, or it can have the one of almost like an imperative, which is how I think we kind of intuitively read it, which is that we are supposed to put off the old self and to put on the new. And I hope this is making sense. One refers to a completed past tense event. The other refers to a present tense thing that we're supposed to be doing. So which is it? Well, let me, let me flip over to Colossians very briefly. Colossians and Ephesians are very, very similar letters. You could even call them sister epistles because they follow very similar outlines. And you'll notice a lot of the same topics and even terminology is used between the two letters. So in Ephesians 3, 8 through, I'm sorry, Colossians 3, 8 through 10, it says, but now you must put them all away. Um, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its, pa- uh, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so here, it, it, Paul is describing it as a completed past action. And so the question is, is he describing the exact same thing here in Ephesians, or is it supposed to be like an imperative? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know which one, but this is what I do know, that both are true, that the old self being put off and the new self being put on are both a completed past action that happened when we were born again, and we'll talk about that more, as well as something that we are to do. It's something that we are to do. And we'll talk, like I said, more about that. Colossians makes it sound like a completed past action. But here's the thing, and this is where things get a little bit difficult sometimes. When we start talking about who we are in Christ and what the Bible says is true about us, where the rubber really meets the road is, is our experience. And sometimes it can be hard and confusing and even discouraging when we feel like our experience doesn't line up with what the Bible says is true about us. So for example, the Bible says, okay, um, the old self was crucified with Christ where it's like, well, you know, that doesn't always feel to be the case. You know, it doesn't always feel like who we are, um, now or who we used to be is, it has been crucified and, and that we're just something altogether new. The Bible says that for those of us who are in Christ, we died to sin. And so, you know, sin will not have any dominion over us. The Bible says that, you know, we are the righteousness of God. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible says that we'll never be left nor forsaken. Yet a lot of times, you know, through the course of life, these things may not necessarily feel to be so. And so how do we bridge the gap without becoming disillusioned, confused, or, you know, whatever else? How does, how does that gap get bridged? And why do we still feel sometimes, you know, the way that we were or wrestle with things that we used to? So let me give you an example from my own life that will hopefully be very helpful. I've shared in this podcast before about how I've had, you know, battles with things like anxiety, worry, fear, um, sadness, and, and things like that. <clears throat> and I've shared just how the Lord has really been doing some wonderful things over the past number of months and really over a long time. 
What's interesting to me is this. Some of my earliest memories in life as a child, I can remember seeing the world as a very scary place. I remember being like, just being, the world is scary. It was very scary. And um, I remember being afraid of like authority. And it's just like, well, they, they set the rules and there's there's nothing that can be, you know, that's it. They, they make the rules and that's that. And so I just really felt um, just very, a very, very scary place. Um, I thought the world was. And then as time went on, that was kind of the lens that started to be developing for me. I, I had developed this, I think, fear of rejection, this fear of abandonment, this feeling of inadequacy, thinking that I'm not enough, that I always have something to prove. And this led to all sorts of troubling things. Like I remember I was the class clown because I was so desperate for the approval of my peers. And then I turned the corner a few years later in high school and was a total, um, was really isolating myself and was just bitter and cynical. And this was all before I was a Christian. And I'd like to say, then I became a Christian and everything went right away, but not so. Not so. When I became a Christian, I continued to wrestle with these things, even though I didn't necessarily see it as such. And um, I still had these these feelings of inadequacy, these feelings of um, fear of being rejected and abandoned, which led to things like perfectionism, led to me like being just completely perfectionistic because I thought if I can just do things perfectly, then that'll reduce the likelihood of you know um, emotional pain and and uh, being rejected or abandoned, um, and just wrestled with just tons of like unnecessary just guilt and shame and all these sorts of things that's kind of followed me. And you think, well, you know, if you're a new creation, then why is that, which is something from who you were still following you? And this is why, and this is for us very important for us to understand. We go through life, we establish filters, worldviews, paradigms through which we see the world. And that's how we perceive things. Like I mentioned earlier, every single one of us has a past before we were Christians. And that means that we all have baggage of sorts and we had already established a worldview that needs to be informed and influenced by the gospel and the truth. Because here's the thing, if we believe something that's false, then it can still impact us even though it's not true. And here's a silly, simple illustration. If I have money in the bank, but I believe that I don't have money in the bank, then I'm going to live like I'm poor. I'm not going to go buy food. I'm not going to take out, you know, um, a card to pay for anything. I'm not even going to do that because I'm convinced I don't have money in the bank when, hey, my needs have been met. The money is in the bank and I need to act accordingly. I need to inform myself with the truth instead of believing lies. But the fact that I'm believing that lie is controlling how I'm believing or how I'm living rather. So I hope this makes sense. We all have these things. We can call these things strongholds, these ways of seeing the world that control how we live. And so that was one for me. And that came over to my relationship with the Lord, where I started being really perfectionistic, afraid that he, I knew he would never ultimately forsake me or leave me. But, but like, I, I would be just very scared that I would disappoint the Lord. I'd be perfectionistic. I would be, you know, just, that would be a real stressor to me. And it's something that I'm still working through really, but I'm, I'm seeing it more and more clearly. And so it's, this is, this is a real thing. And I remember one time I was coming down really hard on myself and I'm sure I, I don't even remember why exactly. Um, it probably wasn't even necessary. I most likely hadn't even done anything wrong, but I just was convinced of something. And this touches on the perfectionism thing. And I was coming down on myself really, really hard. And I just felt like the Lord cut through it and said to my heart, I would never talk to you the way that you're talking to yourself right now this negative self-talk that we engage in, I felt like he said, I would never talk to you the way that you're talking to yourself. Because that's one of the effects of our worldview is how we talk to ourselves, how we think. 
what we believe to be true. And then when we talk to how we talk to ourselves influences and reinforces what it is that we believe. And so by the time years have passed, we have some really well-established belief systems. And so that's very important for us to understand. And this is where we're going to come back and talk about something that's very important that Paul mentioned that I jumped over earlier in verse 23, where it says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So the interesting thing is this passage would still make sense, even if you omitted verse 23. Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, skipping verse 23, says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It still makes sense. It flows perfectly to, to skip verse 23, but verse 23 is the solution. It's the answer. It says to be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And this should immediately make us think about... Um, Romans 12, 2, where it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Remember that passage? Um, in fact, I'll, I'll flip there really quickly and just read it verbatim. Romans 12, um, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... The way practically that we put off the old and put on the new is going to be centered around being transformed by the renewal of our minds or to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And this is very crucial for us to understand. We have to inform ourselves with the truth. We have to change the way that we think. We have to see things properly because, like I said, if there is something that's objectively true but we're believing a lie, and sometimes we don't experience that objective reality in our subjective experience. And I hope that made sense. But what I'm saying is just because something is true doesn't mean that we necessarily experience that if we're believing lies. And so we have to um, make sure that we're believing the truth because there is objective truth. There is absolute truth. There is. However, if we're not believing it, we may not experience it. We may still live in defeat and fear and anxiety and all these other things. And that's just an example from my own life. And the sad thing, just as a side note, like with me, like I said, the whole perfectionistic thing, the perfectionistic tendencies led to certain behaviors. And the world was praising those behaviors. The church world, I would, you know, memorize a lot of scripture. I would read the Bible, but it was all motivated by fear. It was all, not all motivated. I mean, I, I do believe there was genuine, um, genuine pursuit of God in there. Of course, I was born again. But a lot of my perfectionistic tendencies were driven by fear. And so people are praising the behaviors, even though they're not driven by something good. And so we have to get down to the root of things and not just talk about behaviors. We have to see, why am I doing what I'm doing here? So, um, but here's the thing. We can't even do this ourselves. Notice how it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind or, and let's see here, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so I just want to flip to 1 Corinthians 2 real quick, talk about something. And I'm going to, I want to pick up the speed here because I, I want to um, make sure I get through all this. First Corinthians 2, 11 through 12 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so it says right there, part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is that he enables us and helps us to know the things that are freely given us by God. And part of this is going to be our identity in Christ. And so it is our responsibility to fill our heads with it, to seek out what does the Bible say about who I am in Christ? 
but then to pray, to pray and pray and pray and pray some more. No progress is going to happen in the Christian life apart from prayer. We need the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We need the Word and prayer. We can't, just just the Word and no prayer is not enough. And you know this, you've seen people who know the Bible, but who are dry. You don't seem to have any power, yet they know the Bible. And so I think about if we are a locomotive, the Word of God is the tracks, but the Holy Spirit is the power. We need both the tracks and the power. You know, a train sitting still on the tracks is not going to be helpful, but also a train off the tracks with power is, you see what I mean? To put it, okay, so the guy who founded the ministry that um, that I'm on staff with, Mentoring Men for the Master, he used to say, all word and no spirit, you dry up. All spirit and no word, you blow up. All spirit and all word, you grow up. And so it's both of these things. And so it's our responsibility to seek out the word of God and what it says is true about us in Christ, to commit these things to memory, to meditate on these things, but then all the while to be crying out to God and saying, help me to see and help me to believe. And so let me flip over here to Romans 6, and this will be the last thing that we look at. I'm not going to go too deep into Romans 6 because there's an episode, episode 14, entitled Our Funeral Leads to Our Freedom, where we get pretty in-depth into Romans 6, and I'm not going to reteach that content here. But Romans 6 is talking about who we are in Christ. So let me just read, beginning in verse 1 and following. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so here we have the image of baptism. Those verses 1 through 4. Baptism pictures what happened to us the second we were born again. When we were born again, we immediately died and were renewed, resurrected, spiritually speaking, of course. Now we know that there is a future physical resurrection that's going to happen at Jesus' second coming, but his first coming brought a um, a spiritual death and rebirth. And so this is, uh, in, in other words, who we were died and then we were born again. And, uh, and that's by virtue of us being in Christ, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But baptism pictures that, where the idea is what goes under the water is not what comes back up. It's an image. It's a symbol for what happened. And notice the verb tenses. These are past tense. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Back up in verse 2, it says, we who died to sin. So continuing down in verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So let me pause there before getting to the last verse that we're going to be looking at. It says, we were crucified with him. These are past tense, true realities. And a helpful analogy is this. If you're holding a book and you put a piece of paper in that book, wherever that book goes, that paper goes, whatever happens to that book happens to the paper. This analogy is from Watchman Nee, I believe in his book, The Normal Christian Life, where he says, this is part of, this is an idea of what it means to be in Christ. That when we're in Christ, we're like that piece of paper that's been slid into the book. So what happens to the book happens to the paper. And so likewise, when we're born again, just like Jesus died and rose from the dead, we die and rise from the dead. 
who we were ceases to be. And we become a new creation. Our old self was crucified with him. But there's still the how of all this. It's like, that's all great, but how? And that's what verse 11 down here is all about, where Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is talking about very much the whole being renewed in our thinking sort of thing. It says you must consider yourself to be dead to sin, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Believe it to be so. And so how do we do this? This is going to involve a lot of prayer and a lot of self-talk where we're going to talk to ourselves, we're going to remind ourselves what the scriptures say, what is true of us, and we're going to literally, even vocally, externally say things like, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the Lord is pleased. Yeah, you know, just things like this, where it's like, uh, where we, he will never leave me nor forsake me. And so we have to know who we are in Christ, and then we need to remind ourselves of it and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. And one detail I want to include is this. Um, you know, I taught this lesson uh, at, at the ministry that I'm with recently, and somebody said to me afterwards, you missed something. And I'm like, okay, I'm sure I'm sure I missed a whole lot. Um, but okay, so go on, tell me. And, um, and she said, what you missed was that, um, you know, Jesus with Lazarus, Lazarus returning back to that passage there, um, he told people, unbind him and let him go. And people helped Lazarus take off the grave clothes. And so we likewise need to surround ourselves with people who can help us with this, who are going to remind us of who we are in Christ, that'll say things like, hey, those are grave clothes. You don't need to wear that. You don't need to worry about that. And as we as we do this, we will begin to really experience the life that we should, and we will begin to walk out what we should and live how we should, because if we believe the truth about who we are, then the behavior will follow. But if the enemy can get us to believe lies about what's true of us in Christ or how the Lord feels about us, then then we can then we will walk in defeat. I could continue to talk about this much longer, but I'm going to cut it off here because I think the point's been made. But I will say this in the show notes of this episode, I'm going to include some, not all, obviously, but some of the things that are true about you in Christ. And I want you to go check those out. And underneath them, I'll actually include the scriptures as well so that you can see those. But these are things that are true of you. These are things that are true of your identity in him, because we need to understand that you know, yes, the Lord will correct our behavior. Hebrews 12, plenty of other passages that talk about him correcting our behavior. But our identity is that we are accepted and we are loved and we are embraced by God and that nothing will ever change that. And if we can't separate our behavior and identity, then whenever God corrects our behavior, it's like our identity is being attacked. But that's not so. He's just correcting our identity. Our, um, no, he's correcting our behavior because our identity is that we're a child of God. He loves us. Nothing's going to change that for those who have placed their you know, faith and trust in Christ Jesus and so on. We've talked about this stuff before. So be sure to check that out. I hope that this was helpful and that um, you continue to walk in greater, greater measures of freedom and that you experience the life that Jesus purchased for you. All right, guys, as always, hope you're doing great. God bless you.